0: Thank you guys for being here and being on time. We have a lot that we'd like to cover tonight, so we want to get started real quick. Father, I thank you that you are more ready to answer our prayers than we're desperate. You said that before we call that you would answer. You're poised. Your heart is turned towards us. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would open our ears and open our hearts tonight. Apostle Paul wrote and talked about this grace to which we have been introduced. And Father, indeed, it is a grace that we have been merely introduced to. And we'll spend the rest of our the rest of can't say lives, the rest of our eternal lives with you, looking at this thing that you call grace. Open our eyes to see it more. Tune our hearts tonight. To hear it more clear, I ask. In the name of Jesus. Amen. For those of you that did not bring your Bibles, and it's fine that you did not, Um, we'll have some of the scripture verses that we're going to go through tonight as you look over that three page document that I gave you. Several scripture verses we'll be going over. They will be on the wall immediately behind, uh, behind me. So, last week you guys talked about the purpose of the church. This week we're looking at the church's message, the glorious gospel. If you'd follow along with me in Philippians, Starting with chapter 1, verses 4. In all my prayers for all of you, Paul says, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. From the first day until now, it is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains defending or confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. The gospel was the central message in the early church. It is our central message. If you were to hang around the office during the week, one of the things that you would find out is literally everything we do is measured by the gospel and the command for us to take the gospel to the end of the earth. We try to guide our lives and our efforts by that. And I think it's important Sometimes when people join something, an organization, if they don't know what that organization is about. Sometimes if people join a church and they don't know what the main thrust of that church is about. It's sort of like trying to get somewhere without a map. If you don't get there with a map, you're bound to miss it. So tonight we're concentrating on the gospel because it is the primary reason that all of us have in common tonight. So the purpose tonight is going to be to clearly define the gospel so that we can embrace it, apply it, proclaim it, defend it, and advance it. I believe this is in your notes from Jerry Bridges. The gospel is not only the most important message of all of history, it is the only essential message in all of history. Yet thousands of profession Christians live their entire lives without clearly understanding it and experiencing the joy of it. I like to think of it in terms of this way. I like to think in terms of the gospel as being a pearl. Now, the pearl can be very easy to find if you put it in a bathtub. You can look in the bathtub and, okay, there's the pearl. Now, throw a thousand clear marbles into that bathtub, and it becomes a little bit more difficult to find. What we want to do tonight is to look very clearly past what could be clear marbles, our other gospel messages that are running around out there. We want to look clearly at the pearl of the gospel, Gospel that the apostles taught. And that's one of the things that we want to do tonight. Um, I'd like you to just, a real quick thing for you to do here. I'm not going to grade you, I'm not going to ask you to pass around your papers and have somebody else read it. But you can see on that document, you have room, some blank lines there. Would you write out just briefly what your own understanding of the gospel message is? We'll take about 90 seconds here and let you write out your understanding of the gospel. Okay, good. Would you take your papers and turn them over on the backside? This is not in your notes. But I think it's an important place for us to start tonight. Paul, who had spent 18 months in Corinth, is writing the church at Corinth back again. And he says, I delivered unto you that which is of first importance. Here he tells the gospel in an abbreviated form, but it is the gospel. Very short snapshot. He said, I delivered unto you that which is first of importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised according to the scriptures. Very brief verse. It's there. It's interesting that he's coming back to Corinth after they've heard the gospel and he's reminding them of that gospel again. And that's something that we need to do all the time is to renew the gospel within us because the natural tendency of man is to drift. The natural tendency of Christians is to drift away from grace. The natural religion of man is self effort. So this is why we need to continue in the gospel. It's a gospel to which we have been introduced. Paul opens up the gospel more. We did in a verse. If you want to go to one place in the scriptures to find where is the gospel, where can I get deeper into the gospel, you go to the first four chapters of Romans. So, if you want to mark that down, I'd encourage you to do it. When we read through the Gospels, we we read about Jesus Christ. When we read through the Book of Acts, we see Paul preaching and others preaching and teaching the gospel. Peter gave one of the longest exhortations concerning the gospel in Acts chapter two, but Paul really breaks it down for us in the first four chapters of Rome and Romans. And these are the four questions that are brought out in. Um, in the first four chapters of Romans, and it's what we want to cover tonight. So could you write these down in an abbreviated form? Gospel, I mean, question number one, who made us and who are we accountable to? Paul answers this question in the first four chapters of Romans. Question number two, what is our problem? Are we in trouble and why? Question number three, what is God's solution? How has he acted to save us? And how do I come to be included in that salvation? That again. Yes. Uh, question four, how do I p- come to be included in that salvation? So question number one, who made us? Whom are we accountable? Number two, what is our problem? Are we in trouble and why? Number three, what's God's solution? How has he acted to save us? And number four, how do we come to be included in that salvation? What makes this good news for me tonight? and not just someone else. So what I'd like for you to do, if you'd write this acrostic down, helps me a lot, GMCR, which is God, Man, Christ, and Response. And as you look at the outline for tonight, this is exactly the four points that we will be covering. 20,000-foot view, what are we covering tonight? In the, uh, I'm sorry, in the presentation of the gospel, we have gospel. I'm sorry. God, Man, Christ, in response. And if you look at the Gospels that are spelled out in the book of Acts and other places in the New Testament, one of the things that you'll find out is all of those carry these four contents. God, man, Christ, response. If not explicitly stated, it's implied. Now, this is not a formula. One of the things that we're going to ask you to do, this is not a rigid formula, but one of the things that we're going to ask you to do when you complete this class and if you decide membership is something I want to pursue is we want to make sure that we're all on the same page with the gospel. So we'll ask you, tell me the gospel. For me, it's helpful to know God, man, Christ response because that is the gospel. And please know (laughs) that when we sit with you and say, tell me the gospel. We're not testing you. We certainly want to know Some of my children used to take uh, trips together. And um, I would ask them, I'd say, guys, tell me the gospel. Just tell me the gospel. And they were thinking that I was checking up on them just to see if they knew, if they could click off the right words. But actually, when I would ask them, it was, I need to know your understanding of the gospel. If Peter writes and says that these angels who are incredibly smart and they look into this, the salvation that we have this salvation. They long to look in to the salvation and grace that we have We're constantly going to be discovering grace constantly going to be discovering salvation and the gospel and what all that means I need to hear the gospel. I need to hear the gospel every day I need to hear it from you. I need to hear it from those that are around me And uh, so we're gonna ask you when we sit down and have an opportunity to talk with you tell me the gospel Don't feel like you're, you know, going to get a a bad grade. Just minister to us as you're telling us the gospel. So, God, man, Christ, response. Your outline tonight is going to touch on all of those. So, if you would look back on your notes. So, we're talking about the gospel. Daryl Bach says, the cross is the hub of the gospel. But Jesus dying for sin is not the entire gospel. In fact... Only to speak of Jesus dying for sin, even to speak of Jesus dying for sin and rise again, is to give only about half of the gospel. We preach the cross because it's at the core of the gospel, and it makes discussing presenting the gospel fairly straightforward. By doing so, we echo Paul, who used the image of the cross in Corinthians to summarize and highlights his view of the gospel message. The gospel is more than just about forgiveness. Forgiveness means everything but it's more than just about forgiveness. If there's one big takeaway I want you to take away from tonight is to know that the gospel is first a promise. The gospel's a promise. God comes to Adam and to Eve in the garden and he says, this is what I am going to do about your situation. I am going to, I am, I will crush the head of the enemy. The gospel is first a promise. And God tells us that he is going to put his spirit within us and he is going to live within us. So, yes, it's about our sins being forgiven and being put in right relationship with God. But the gospel is also that he comes to live and reside in our hearts and walk inside of us. And we have an opportunity to walk in the spirit. So. Let's keep going. Would you look at Galatians chapter 3, verses 24 and 25 with me? You guys know how important it is when you read a scripture verse to know who the audience is that he's speaking to? He's speaking to the churches throughout Galatia at this point. And what's happening with the churches at Galatia is they first came to know God, Christ. They hung on to the gospel. Then what's called some Judaizers came through and said, oh, yeah, it's good. Know Christ, accept Christ. But you also got to obey the law. And if you obey the law, then you're saved. And Paul is writing to clarify to that group of people what is the gospel and what place law has in, um, in God's salvation history to us throughout all ages. So Galatians chapter 3, verse 24 and 25. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. Can I stop there? So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we're no longer under the supervision of the law. I taught this lesson a couple, of, a couple of years ago. We're going to talk a little bit about the law tonight. And when I was through, this very smart boy said, when you say law, what do you mean? And I'm going, ay-yi-yi, I am going ay i did not make that plain enough at the beginning so that people will understand. When we talk about the law, it's mentioned several different times throughout Scripture. The law is, first five books of the Bible is called the Torah, it's called the law. But if you also look at Jesus talking about the law and the prophets, and Paul talking about the law of the prophets, then you take everything from the first five books of the Bible all the way through Malachi, and that is called the law and the prophets. So tonight, when I'm referring to the word law, what I'm saying is the law refers to all the righteous demands Of God that reveal His holy commandments to His people, including moral, religious, and even civil obligations. The law is good. Paul said that the law was good. It served a purpose. It leads us to Christ. It was never intended to justify us. It was intended to point out, "This is who I am. This is how you're to respond to me. This is how you're to love one another." And we would see, "I don't meet. I don't make that. I need somebody to help me. I need a savior." What the prophets testified against, what Paul is writing to the Galatians about, is legalism. It's taking the law and thinking by obeying that, I'm going to get in right relationship with God. So, the law has been around forever. The law is an expression of who God is. It will continue to be around forever. Because God is going to be around forever. The law served a purpose. It was to point us to Christ. So the law is good. So as we talk through the law tonight, remember it's the righteous commands that that God gave us throughout the scriptures. However, in Hebrews chapter ten and verse one, if you follow along with me, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. Colossians two seventeen. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So the law was given as a shadow of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Looking at the law is somewhat like taking pre-med classes. I know that that before I came to work here at Gulf Church, or Gulf Church, Gulf Church, Gulf Coast Church, came on staff, I, I held a registered nurse license. And like other industries that you get into or other professions, there's some terminology that you've got to know to work your way around and be proficient in that In that field, what God is doing through the law is to inform us: yes, who He's about, what He's about. But He's giving us a language so that we could understand as we see things in the New Testament, such as "Behold, the Lamb of God." We knew what role lambs and sacrifice played in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. So, law again is sort of like taking. Uh, pre-med classes or some other career path that you would be on. The law did serve a purpose. Here's one of the purposes. We're going to start with G, the letter God. The law teaches us that our God is a creator king. The first thing we learn when we open our Bibles is that God created the world. As creator, he's ruler over everything. All creatures are required to obey him. God placed man in the garden of delights and only required that he not eat of one eat, I'm sorry, that, he, that man not eat from one tree in the middle of the garden. It's pretty amazing when you think about it. God gave man all authority as a vice-regent over everything that God had created. He put everything under the feet of man except for one thing, God. And he did this as an illustration by putting the tree in the middle of the garden. To not eat from the tree was an acknowledgement God has all authority to determine right and wrong for his children. Maybe you've heard what I've heard. People thinking, if if God knew that people were going to, or Adam and Eve were going to eat of the tree, and he knew they'd sin, why did he put it in the garden? Why did God put it in the garden if he knew they were going to fall? And what we have to recognize is, It was a kindness from God that he put the tree in the garden. Because it was a visual reminder to them, you are under authority. You're not your own. You belong to another. So it was a kind reminder. It wasn't that God was being mean. It was saying, there is an authority that is over you. The world that God had created was perfect, free from evil and suffering. Man, Adam, rejected God's rule and determined to take unto himself the authority to determine right and wrong. And this is the root sin, a rejection of God's creator rights. What Adam did fail, for with sin came death, which is God's judgment on sin. And with death, every form of incipient death, sickness, hatred, murder, poverty, sorrow, and pain followed. Man's fundamental rebellion is a rebellion against God. Number two, the law teaches us that God is a holy king. What does it say about God? One of the primary things the law says about is about his character and that he's holy. The law is a working out of God's character, and therefore it requires the holiness of his people. God's love is the greatest expression of his holiness and of his righteousness. Holiness speaks of God's purity, blamelessness, that which sets him apart from creation, and it demands devotion. For instance, we know that God is love. But his love is not an unholy love. Men love. But their love is perverted by sins into lust and selfish cravings. When God has anger, it is a just anger and not an unholy anger. James tells us in James chapter 4 that when we get angry, it's look at your own lust. That our anger proceeds out of our own lust. And the word there. Lust actually means an over-desire. It's not unrighteous for a woman to want her husband to lead that family in God. But she can want it so bad that she manipulates him and gets angry when he doesn't do it. Excuse me later for using that illustration. That was just a fast one. But that's an example of an unrighteous good desire, but it became an over-desire. And that over-desire caused anger. Now, God's anger is not an unholy anger. It's a pure and righteous anger. So one of the things that the law teaches us is that God is a holy king. Another thing that the law teaches us, we're still on God, is that he is a just king. God's justice means that he will judge the oppressor, that he will take care of the weak, and that he's just in all of his judgments. If you'd read with me Exodus chapter 22, starting with verse 21, do not mistreat an alien or oppress him for you were aliens in Egypt. Do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan. If you do, and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. It's an illustration of of God's justice. Sort of sounds like this. Freely, you've been forgiven. Then freely forgive for you were aliens in Egypt. God's justice is driven by law. I'm sorry, God's justice is driven by his love. But this same justice demands that he punish sin and everything that exalts itself against God. God in his justice must punish all sin. God had said in the garden, if you die and Die, they surely did. And if you look at Genesis chapter 5 through 11, you'll see it was just a litany of so-and-so died, and so-and-so died, and so-and-so died, and so-and-so died. So So if you sin, that you would surely die. And it was interesting. It's it's, creation started groaning at that time for redemption. Before God created the earth, it was without form. It It was void. It was. It, 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 was, it was without form, it was out void, it was disorganized. Just as soon as man sinned, or I'm sorry, God went ahead and created it and he brought order. Soon as man sinned, it went back and unraveled. And we had weeds and thorns and sweat of the brow in order to have any fruit that was produced. Mosquitoes. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> So the decision to say, I want to do what I want to do, creation became unraveled around us. Things became hard, became difficult. Can you imagine the situation that if that would have not have happened and it came time for childbirth, that dad and kids are sitting around watching the Super Bowl or something and mom says, you know, guys, I'll be back in just a little bit. I want to go upstairs. And she comes back with a baby in her arms. How simple and easy would that be? But pain and, childbirth, pain and childbirth was a result of that. He had order when man decided, I want my way. Then things got out of order. And if you think about it, most of the pain that we see in the world, a lot of the pain that we see in our lives can be directly attributed to, we want what we want. The law teaches us that God is a just king. The law teaches us that God is a redeemer king. The law reveals God's redeeming nature. We see it over and over and over again. If we go all the way back to the garden, when God made a promise, and again, I want to emphasize again, first, the gospel is a promise. When he said, I will put envy between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. God is the one that's making a promise. So he, the, God, the law reveals that God is a redeemer God. And again, in Genesis chapter 22, when God calls Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, it would not have been uncommon for that period of time to see this kind of an act happen. I mean, we look at it today and we repel and we go, what in the world is going on? There's no way would I even think about sacrificing my child. That was just sort of the culture of the time. It was something that was very much accepted. But it would not have been uncommon for the religions of that day. God calls Abraham in a test of his faith, what he trusted in to sacrifice his son. When Isaac asked where the sacrifice was, Abraham prophesies. Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And it turns out that indeed this is the takeaway from the account. So God did provide, and Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. God wasn't asking Abraham to do anything with blind faith. Sacrifice the son. God never asked people to do things in blind faith. Abraham earlier had seen that Isaac came from Sarah's dead womb and Abraham himself was considered dead. And Abraham knew he had heard God promise to him through Isaac will your descendants be called. Abraham had seen a son come forth out of a dead womb and he was convinced that if God said sacrifice your own son that he himself, God, was capable of bringing Isaac back from the dead, the writer of the Hebrews tells us. God made a promise, and that's what the law revealed to us, is that our God is a redeemer God. When Yahweh brings his people out from slavery to Pharaoh, he brings them out, calls them his own, and then gives them his law, teaching them how to live. We see it the sacrificial systems, which were part of the law. The sacrifices were atoned for, as you know, are to more clearly expiate their sins. Here we learn the meaning of atonement. And we talked about that language that you start to learn. God uses the law to give us a language so that we can see what God's like, what we're supposed to be like. The sacrifices were to atone for, and they're learning words like expiation, the removing of guilt, propitiation, satisfying the demands of justice, and absorbing the wrath of God. And again, this is where we learn things like, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He brought them out of slavery, and that was a sign of his redeeming character. The law teaches us about God as a redeemer in words like Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Don't you love the first part of that verse? Verse 6. Isn't that great? The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. And you keep reading and you go, Ugh. but he does not leave the guilty unpunished. And he didn't leave the guilty unpunished. Instead, on one person, Christ he poured out all of that punishment right there and exhausted God's holy wrath. Drained the cup of God's wrath bone dry. He didn't leave the the uh, guilty unpunished. He punished Christ. So he is a compassionate, gracious God. He is a redeemer God. Let's go to point number two. What does the law reveal and teach us about man? We've seen hints of this already. But let's ex- clearly examine what the law teaches us about ourselves and our need for a redeemer. The law teaches us that man is sinful. Now, that's really offensive. You talk to a guy on the street and say, you know what, you're a sinful person. God guy may say, hey, you know what? I'm not that bad. I may make a few mistakes, but I'm not that bad. We're going to see in a minute that there is none righteous, no, not one. To say that man is sinful is another way of saying that we reject God's kingship. We reject his right as creator king to tell us what right What is right and wrong? And we're determined to write our own ethics, determine for ourselves what's right and wrong at its root. This is what's called sin, rejecting his creator rights. While we're not all as sinful as we could be, the Bible talks about a restraining grace that's on us, and it could be worse than what it is. Sin has touched and stained every part of our being. Another way to say that would be that we fail to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Every part of us fails God, and we fail to love our neighbor as ourselves. Paul raises this summary of what the law teaches us about man in Romans 3, if you'd follow along there with me, starting with verse 10. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God, and all have turned away. They have all together become worthless. There is no one. You're starting to get a rhythm a pattern there. There is no one. There is no one. We tend to think, ah, I've made some errors. But God is saying, No, there's no one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers are on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. This is man rejecting God's kingship and authority over him. We're all silenced before God means that we cease with our self-defense. We are to be convicted of our guilt in regard to sin, righteousness, and judgment. Next, the law teaches us that man is unable to reform himself. Not only is man as bad as we've just discovered, but the other thing we find out about man in these same verses is that man's incapable of changing himself we don't sin because we choose to though we can the unregenerate man sins because he can't choose not to i remember david pallison one time writing an article and talking about man being in a place where he cannot but choose to sin is that for the unbeliever Most sin is invisible to them. We tend to think in terms of sin being a transgression, something that we should not do. Thou shalt have no other gods before you. You shall not commit whatever. Thou shalt not commit murder. We tend to think in terms of sin as being a transgression against God. If you look into Romans chapter 1, it's very interesting because God holds all of creation, all of man responsible for this, Romans chapter 1 and verse 21, because they did not honor God as God and they were not thankful. So when you think about sin being something that you committed or didn't do or did do, it's interesting that God says these men, unbelievers, did not honor God as God or be thankful Ever had trouble being thankful? Ever have trouble honoring God as honoring God? The law teaches us that man is is unable to reform himself. There's three things that the law can't do. The law was good, right? Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verse 10, the law was good. And it was to teach us what God was like and how to love our neighbor as ourself. But there's three things. This is a pretty cool thing to write down, if you'd like. There's three things that the law could not do. Number one, the law could not give you a righteous record. It could show you unrighteousness, but it could not give you a righteous record. The second thing that the law could not do is it couldn't change your heart. It'd reveal your heart, but it couldn't change your heart. And the third thing that the law couldn't do was it couldn't give you righteous desires, A righteous power. So, the unregenerate man isn't free to choose whether or not we're going to follow God and live for for ourselves. We're enslaved to sin and have no ability to free ourselves. Israel was the chosen people. They had the law of God, the miracles, the covenants, the promises. If anybody could have done it right, certainly they could have because of all the wealth that they had. Of the knowledge of God, but they couldn't from start to finish. They failed. There's a writer by the name of Scotty Smith. Remember the guy I was telling you about the book earlier? He said, When you look at the law of God, just in the Ten Commandments, what's also called the Ten Words, and we see that we can't do it, that it was to point us to a Savior. And I like the way he phrased it. He said, The law is given so that we can cry, Uncle. So that we can cry, Abba. When we see that we can't do it and see that he's done it, now we can cry out, Father. So, man cannot transform himself. The law could not transform him. Ephesians 2 says that we were dead in trespasses and sins, alienated from Christ without hope and without God in the world. Dead people just don't get up and make their way to Christ. In fact, dead people don't do much of anything at all. In relation to God, we're dead. We walked okay, but we walked in sin. We were dead men walking. We did not walk towards God. We walked away from Him. Dead people don't do much of anything. I told you earlier that before I came on staff here, I worked as a registered nurse in the medical intensive care unit for whatever reason guys go into the medical field we sort of like to go to the to the intensive care units because we got toys that we can play with there machines um, electronics stuff like that and I remember the first time I was working with a patient who passed away on me and I walked into the room and you're able to watch as death approaches the electrical impulses of the body start to change and start to diminish. Heartbeats start to beat slower. And eventually you see a systole. And it was weird. It was different. When I walked into the room, even though that person was on the very last moments of breathing, he could sense that there was a presence in the room. Their presence, the patient, was was still alive and when a happened, when there was no more heartbeat, when there was no more breathing, first time it happened to me, I walked back outside of the room, went to document something on the, on the patient's chart, and I walked back in the room, and for the first time, I sensed something's missing. There's a presence that was missing. That person was no longer there. There's no way in the world that guy could have got up that dead person on his own and walked. Before Christ, before God made us alive together with Him, we were dead, incapable of anything. And so the Scripture says that um, we were we were dead; we were not capable of doing anything that we were dead people without hope and without God in the world. The law also teaches us that mankind is under God's judgment. The story of the old covenant ends at the end of the old covenant with a judgment on God's people. Judgment because they failed to keep the covenant. Would you read with me here in Hebrews chapter 8? For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for for another. But God found fault with the law? No. doesn't say that, does it? The law is good. God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand. Do you you hear the compassion of God there? Do you hear his heart? He led them by his hand out of Egypt. It will not be like that covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. The law teaches us repeatedly that our best efforts will end in God's just and undeserved judgments on our lives. Number three, Christ. The Redeemer King comes into our fallen world. The gospel is the announcement that the King has come, and now reigns. Whereas we were under the reign of sin and the dominion of death, living in the kingdom of darkness, Christ has come that we might live under his righteousness, live in the dominion of eternal life in the kingdom of light. You guys recognize we have no righteousness of our own, right? None. None. You are no more righteous a million years from now as you are tonight. Because it's not a righteousness, it's our own. It's His righteousness that He came to give us. And we'll celebrate that throughout eternity. So, we live under the reign of His righteousness now. Here's some truths about how God redeemed us. First, God acted freely by Himself. This is the thing I think that separates our God from other gods. God always makes the first move. When Adam was running, when Adam wasn't looking for him, God made the first move and went looking for Adam. Same thing with Abraham. God's making the first move, calling him out of error of the Chaldees. For Moses, he's making the first move, pulling Moses out from the desert, calling him to himself. This is what separates our God from every other God that's out there. Our God makes the first move. God acts first. Ephesians 2 says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. Someone asked Martin Luther one time, he said, so what do we contribute to our, our salvation? What do we contribute? And Luther said, we, cons- we contribute our sin and we contribute our resistance. That's what we contribute. Because we're running from God. We're dead in transgressions and sin. We're helpless and without God. What do we contribute? (laughs) I like what Luther said. We contribute our sin and our resistance. God always makes the first move. For it is by grace that you have been saved. God always makes the first move. It is by grace that you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. Is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. God provided the lamb. He paid the price. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The redeemer king came to be the lamb of sacrifice and to bear away the guilt of our sin. Would you read with me Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 21. But now our righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. And he did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Remember he said, who would in no wise clear the guilty? And here he is now having justice. He, he can't be attacked for being unjust because he poured all of his wrath out on Jesus Christ. Faith in Christ is his His faith in His perfect obedience. The Father's complete satisfaction in what Christ has done. It is faith in His substitutionary death that paid the price, the full price for our sin. And He suffered the wrath of God for which we deserve. In Christ, God remains just. He doesn't just change the rules and not punish sin. He does. But He punishes our substitute. And therefore, God can be the justifier. The one who declares us righteousness. And though we sinned, God declares us righteous. I think it's a very important thing to note. God doesn't make us righteous, He declares us righteous. If you look at the word in the Greek, um, no more sin was, more than Jesus was made sinful, though He took on our sin. The righteousness we have is the righteousness of Christ. And he declared, Abraham, he declares us as being righteous. And you know what, guys? That helps. That helps me live life. So because when I'm struggling and I'm seeing myself in the crud that has not yet been conformed to his image, it helps me to see that the righteousness that I have is not one of my own. And it turns me away from looking at myself. And this is what the gospel does. The gospel makes us look out. It makes us look out to Christ. And so righteousness is his righteousness. Christ set us free. Now we're starting to move into this response area, the final area tonight we'll discuss. There are some questions which could arise since we're dead and helpless. For instance, if we're slaves to sin, and cannot choose to do right. How can we get free to follow Christ? How do we get free? Well, Jesus Christ sets you free. John eight thirty six says, If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And once free, we're free to choose Christ. Free to love Him. Free to live for Him. Matthew chapter 11 shares this same truth from a different perspective. It's from the perspective of the Father. And I'll give you rest. Ephesians 1 verses 4 and 5 makes us very clear why any of us would come to God. He chose us before the creation of the world, which was long before we chose him. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. And then it gives us the reason to the praise of his glorious grace. the praise of his glorious grace, that everything that we do, the lives that we live, the repentance that we go through, would be to the praise of the glory of his grace. And so we talk about grace tonight. What we've been talking about for the last few minutes is what's called the doctrines of grace or sovereign grace. You have uh, a narrative here At the very last page, I'd like for you to read with me. After giving a brief survey of these doctrines of sovereign grace, I asked for questions from the class. One lady in particular was quite troubled. She said, this is the most awful thing I've ever heard. You make it sound as if God is intentionally turning away men and women who would be saved, receiving only the elect. I answered her in this vein, you misunderstand the situation. You're visualizing that God is standing at the door of heaven. And men are thronging to get in the door, and God is saying to various ones, yes, you may come, not you, not you, but you. The situation is hardly this. Rather, God stands at the door of heaven with his arms outstretched, inviting all to come. Yet all men, without exception, are running in the opposite direction towards hell as hard as they can go. So God, in election, graciously reaches out, stops this one and that one, and this one over there, and that one over there, and he effectually draws them to himself by changing their hearts, making them willing to come. Election keeps no one out of heaven who would otherwise have been there, but it does keep a whole multitude of sinners out of hell who otherwise would have been there. Would it not for election, heaven would be an empty place and hell would be bursting at the seams. That kind of response, grounded as I believe, that is in scriptural truth, does not put a different complexion on things, doesn't it? If you perish in hell, blame yourself, as it's entirely your fault, but if you should make it to heaven, credit God, for that is entirely his work. To him alone belongs all the praise and the glory, for salvation is all of grace from start to finish. While we were still helpless, while we were enemies, while we were dead in transgressions and sins, by his grace, by his mercy, He reached out and touched us and said, I will do a new thing within you. I will give you a heart to follow me. I will give you a heart to follow me. It's all of grace and it's all of God. I'd like to close. I don't know if you guys have heard of a pastor by the name of Mark Dever. He wrote something. Actually, I read a couple of his books and put a few of his thoughts together and i'd like to close for this tonight this is what jesus taught and he taught it very clearly is that we've all been made in god's own image yet all of us have sinned against god we've all done what we wanted to with our lives rather than what god wants us to do it doesn't mean that we're completely immoral no we're all made in the image of god and we're going to do some things right But on the whole, we've done what we want to with our lives. And because of that, we either ignore or disagree with what God says, and in so doing, we disobey God. This happens over and over again throughout the Bible, and it's what the Bible calls sin. And because what God says is good and right and just, and what we choose to do is self-centered and focused on ourselves in a wrong sort of way, Jesus taught that justice would ultimately be dispensed by a God more concerned with truth, more knowledgeable of the facts, and indeed, knowing the hearts of those involved more than anyone else ever could. And he promised that time as we know it will end, and there will come a day when justice will be completely, fully, and perfectly done. Now, there's a problem with that. Because Jesus also taught that people were spiritually needy, guilty, and deserving God's wrath rather than his reward and that's why he said he had to come to be a substitute to take God's wrath not because God is hard and bitter but because he's truly good to take God's wrath against every wrong that we've ever done and bear it for all of those who would have him as their substitute he came to live a perfect life trusting his heavenly father as you and I should do but we don't do perfectly And then he died on a cross in the place of all who would ever turn from their sins and trust in him. God raised him at the dead, at the resurrection, signifying that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was accepted. God's wrath had been satisfied. And we can now know that God's punishment for sin has been exhausted for all of us who will take Jesus as our Savior and see in him the Messiah of God sent to save his people from their sins. Amen. Amen. The gospel is a promise. I will put in you a new heart. I will cause you to follow after my ways from beginning to end. It's all of grace. It's all of God. And if we see him, and if we see him clearly, it's because by his grace he has opened our eyes or he's put that new heart within us to be able to see Him. Yeah. This is the doctrine of, of grace. Guys, um, it's about 7.30.